beautiful Hollywood. Beautiful. Welcome to it. This is Beautiful Hollywood. I'm Melanie Camp and today we are talking to artist Claire Salvo. Now, today's show comes with a trigger warning, but I do hope that this can be something that helps you if you're in the process of healing. Claire is a survivor of sexual assault. Her latest portrait series, Me We, shares the stories of nine survivors of sexual assault. And we are going to talk to Claire about her journey with this latest art series and also talk about her very interesting life life journey. In her late teens, Claire left art behind and moved to New York City where she built a career as a music producer and a DJ. She travelled the world. She was one half of the Jane Doe's. She shared stages with the likes of Calvin Harris et al. And then after close to 10 years of music, she packed up and moved home to her parents in Pennsylvania, back to her childhood bedroom and reconnected with art. We are in Venice, California today because that is where Claire lives now. And Claire... Thanks for coming on Beautiful Hollywood to share your journey as a survivor and an artist. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat with you today Um, because basically you, as a child, you were very much into your art. And I mean, for someone who basically went on to become a professional party animal, being a DJ, <laughs> you as a kid, you were not that at all. You were just totally nerding out on art. <laughs> were you an art nerd? Not, not in the way where I wanted to learn everything about art. I think I love to do it, but I wasn't so interested in learning about the history. (laughs) When I was little, probably until the age of eight, I was kind of a little monster. Oh Uh, yeah. Disruptive, loud. (laughs) Oh, so you were, you were like a party. You were a party animal. I have these images of you like sitting, shading, looking at apples and working out. But drawing, when I was drawing, that was the one time I think when I used to shut up. Oh, so were your parents very much like, hey Claire, here's some pencils. (laughs) Oh, they, they've encouraged it forever. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. So that's, that's pretty, that's pretty awesome. Now you were, you did art for a long time as a kid. Since I could hold a pencil, I've been drawing. Your attack happened when you were 17. That's right. Mm -hmm. It was, um, it maybe a week into my senior year of high school. Um, it was, it was September of 2006. When it happened, your parents took you straight to the police station. Oh yeah. And there you were able, because of your skills as an artist, to actually sketch your attacker for the police. I did. Um, and I don't have a copy of that sketch anymore. And I wish I did. I actually had reached out to the detective in February of last year, trying to track it down because I thought it might be an interesting supplement to this art project. And oh, yeah. they could, they couldn't find it. I have like the digital composite that was done, but I don't have the the one that I drew. Oh, wow. But what I realized so many years later that I, that completely was lost on me in that moment is that being able to draw him was kind of like the the culmination of 17 years of honing a skill. It was like all of that passion became purpose in that moment. Wow. Um, that was that did not dawn on me till like the last year or so. Oh man. Okay. So at the time when you were sketching it, what was it what what was that process like? For uh you? they had been asking me to describe him so that they could do it and I I I mean my memory is kind of hazy because it was so you know, when you go through trauma, your brain, um, just kind of like shuts down. And uh, I remember them asking me questions about what he looked like and, and me just saying, you know, let me just do it. This is, it'll probably be better because I'm the one who, who went through it and I have his image in my head if I just put it to paper. Wow. What with the police? I mean, were they surprised by mm, that? Or? I don't remember that. Mm. Those mm. kind of specifics. Far out. I mean, that's <laughs> a pretty. It seems like a really intense thing to go through. But then I suppose, like you say, you're in the middle of the trauma and the shock, and so 
it's amazing how much our body protects us in those moments. Would you say that's what happens? Yeah. I mean, it can happen in a few different ways. You know, you hear like fight or flight. And I think that kind of both kicked in. I fought until I could leave, (laughs) until I could run. And then how long after that happened that you moved to New York? And why did you move to New York? So that was the very beginning of my senior year. And I moved to New York the following summer. And when my assault happened, I didn't know where I wanted to go to college. I had I had dreams of going to UNC um, or Vanderbilt, actually, which is kind of the opposite of NYU. But I, as the year passed and I applied, um, I didn't get into those schools. And I applied to, I forget how many, but I ended up getting into three. And it was Delaware, Pittsburgh, or NYU. And to me, that choice was obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... I think as the kind of like the fallout from this event set in, I I just wanted to be someplace that felt completely different from home. And Delaware and Pittsburgh were just too, too similar. Um, And and New York was only three hours away and it was a completely different world. And I'd been going every year since I was 12 with my grandma. So I was kind of familiar with the city. I had family up there. I have an aunt and uncle. Um, So it felt, it felt like the, the next best step. Right. So it was a bit of an es- es- escape or to get a- to have that time to get away from it. W- it was. And, and to me, being in a place, a suburban place that's really quiet at night, mm-hmm. nothing was scarier than that. So to be in a city where I'm surrounded by constant people and activity and, you know, police and just like witnesses, basically, is yeah. I think what I was thinking in my head um, felt really safe to me. You were influenced to move there a lot because of what had happened to you. Mm-hmm, I think so. So after that, did you move away from art when you moved to New I York? did completely. Yeah. Art just kind of fell by the wayside and I was so distracted um, by and in love with New York that I, you know, I didn't want to sit in my room drawing. I wanted to be out doing it. Okay. And then how did you fall into music then? Production had kind of piqued my interest before I moved to New York because I remember asking for a MacBook specifically so that I could have GarageBand. Okay. And I don't know where that came from. I'd grown up playing instruments, but had never produced or ex- expressed an interest in it. Yeah. Um, and then when I got to school, I kind of fell in with this group of friends who would come home late at night, like three in the morning after the bars and just rap. And my friend and I at that time, would we all lived in the same dorm and we'd go upstairs to their room um, after we'd all been out and just listen to them rapping or like listen to what they'd recorded the night before. And just, I think we were both really competitive and we said, oh, we could do this so much better than you. <laughs> so we started like recording raps in our dorm room <laughs> and that's, that's kind of how it started. And my friend said, if you make me a beat, I'll rap over it. And I said, okay, challenge accepted. Yeah. And I did in GarageBand and that's what set me off on that path of production. And I got a, an internship working in the kind of music industry side of things. Um, and yeah, that was the beginning of that. Oh my God, that's amazing. What was your major? Was it anything? Communications. To you? Oh, okay. So it's kind of like media and it's, it, yeah, yeah, I mean, it is sort of, isn't it? I Relevant. Did, I don't know. Yeah, I did it. Actually, my de- my degree, I didn't finish it, but it was, commu- was called communications or mass communications. Mm-hmm. So, okay. And I love, shout out to GarageBand. We're yes. actually going, we're recording into GarageBand. So this is so cool. Sending some love. That is so great. So then you formed the Jane Doe's. Yeah. With the Jane Doe's. I had a, few different day jobs. My first day job in music I found through Craigslist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started interning for this music manager who actually went on to manage 
Andy Grammer and has had a couple like very successful artists. And that was just completely random from Craigslist. And I went from there to an internship at Columbia Records and then from there to um, an internship, which became a job at a small management company that shared space with a recording studio in Union Square. Um, and it was there that I met my future business partner. I was at that time like interning and getting coffee for our bands and she was doing digital marketing for those same bands at Columbia Records. So she worked for their label. I worked for their management. Um, so we met and just started talking and hit it off immediately. And we'd both separately been producing. Mm -hmm. And so we just thought, well, we should make music together. So she used to work a full day at Columbia Records in Midtown, come down to Union Square after her day, we'd get dinner and then just sit at my office until like 11 p.m. making music. Oh my god! That's how it started. And then we did that for two years, that like Batman kind of life where nobody really knew what we were doing, but we were just staying really late making music. And like we started putting it out. We started DJing. Um, and then we ended up quitting our day jobs and doing it full time because it just was not sustainable to, yeah. to be traveling and then have to be in an office at 9am the next day. How were you distributing your music and getting it out then? When we were doing that, it was kind of the golden age of music blogs and like frat music blogs. There was, okay. there were a bunch of sites that just generated so much traffic. And a lot of those plays came from college kids who were just trying to see like what's cool and new in music. So those college kids used to reach out to us, um, especially people who were in charge of programming at fraternities, and ask us to come DJ. Oh, my god! That's how it started. So yeah. it was just grassroots. I mean, we would send our music out. It was all mashups at that point, and we would send uh, just building relationships with these blogs one by one. We would send out our song to 30 different blogs, and if two responded, we made sure to send a personal response, and then the next time we released something we would reach out to them and always thank them however we could on on socials, even though it was kind of the early days of social media. So, I mean, did that help that, you know, you, you guys were understood the business a bit, you'd been working in it and you understood sort of the, yeah, the marketing side of things? Oh, absolutely. I think that's a piece that is missing for a lot of artists and uh, to their detriment. We knew how to um, brand ourselves, how to create a brand voice, how to interact and engage with our fans and followers. And Jen, my business partner had been doing digital marketing. So she knew all about creating social campaigns and how to build buzz. Yeah. Um, we definitely applied everything we'd learned to our own project. Yeah. It's interesting how many artists sort of think they can just do their art and kind of then it that just, it will just magically get discovered. There's there's yes. a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes and, and making a name and a logo that people remember. Mm. Um, and knowing how to put together an email and pr- do follow-ups and write contracts and yeah. all of it. Yeah. Now that you're in a whole different art space. I'm applying you- exactly the same rules. And, and I think often actually about how, what my chance of success as an artist would be if I hadn't had to put in that time building a brand um, in a different kind of like vertical. Um, like everything I learned in music, I'm applying to my career in art. What would you say the most um, kind of consistent techniques that you would see would work across all the arts? Branding, making sure that you have an aesthetic um, and that it's easy for people to reach you. I think something that I've encountered a lot in my attempt to do outreach both in music and as an artist trying to reach out to news outlets or people to collaborate with is that when I find someone who I like but I can't get in touch with them, it's so frustrating to me. And there have been opportunities that have come to me because my email address is on my Instagram. 
like I make it easy. Yeah. You don't want people, if people have to spend 10 minutes trying to find your contact information, they've moved on to the next. That makes a lot of sense. That's (laughs) a, Hey, that's a good, that's a good tip. Pro tip. Pro tip. What was it like in those days, you know, at the height of DJing and being, you know, I mean, you guys did electric Daisy festival in Vegas and you were on stage with some big name DJs. Like what was that world like? And that traveling the world as a DJ. It was a lot of fun. Um, I'll say that neither of us played into that party girl stereotype. Mm-hmm. It was very much a job for us. And though we had a really good time, we would show up early to our set, make sure we had sound checked and everything was working. Our rider, I think, had like beer, diet soda, pretzels, and hummus. Like it was pretty, <laughs> and we never touched the beer. That was just for like anyone who showed up who, who were friends of ours and maybe wanted it, but we, we just drank soda. Oh my um, gosh. And we would leave when our set was done. And I think the expectation often was that the artist would stay and party until four in the morning, um, or they'd be drinking during their set. And that works for some people. And it just didn't appeal to us at all. Do you think that could be a bit of a pitfall of the job? Because you do hear of DJs who have drug problems, who have, you know, and then... If that's tempting, it's really, it's not just accessible, it is in your face. And encouraged. Yeah, encouraged. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. Um, It wasn't tempting to either of us. So we never felt like we were going to slide down that slope. Do you think that there's an aspect where people sort of glamorize that party and that drug lifestyle in that industry that isn't a good thing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you're playing in a club, the the like allure of a club is getting in. You wait in the line, you have to know someone who knows someone. And when you're the DJ or the talent, you're treated like royalty. Like you don't wait in a line. You're, you show up with a list of things you want and they provide it, generally speaking, unless it's like blue M&Ms. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, not, not only is the alcohol free, but you are being paid to be there. So you're not spending your time, you are earning money. Right, yeah. It is a lot about personal relationships. So if you're there schmoozing with the promoter and um, really putting in that social time, the likelihood of you getting booked there again is definitely higher. It's kind of a, a boys' club, so it's like being one of the one of the guys. Um, but again, we never really did that, and I do think that that impacted whether or not we were booked to play a place twice. Did that work against you then, being I being think so. professional? Yeah, I do think so. But I don't I don't regret it. Neither yeah. of us regret it. It was the only way that we were going to do it. Yeah, it's not like you're going to go, oh, what a shame we didn't have a drug habit. Yeah, <laughs> maybe we would have had like a little more, you know, like fin- or we would have just been more financially secure if we had done that, but yeah. at, at what expense? But still at some level, I mean, you guys had riders and you were like showing up, feeling <laughs> VIP at clubs and all this sort of stuff. How was it when it ended? I mean, how did it end? And then you ended up moving home, back in with your parents which is a whole thing in itself. It was even as much as you might love your parents, it's moving back in as a grown-up who's looked after her own life for so long. And you move back into your childhood bedroom. I, did. I mean, that's a big, that's <laughs> got to be kind of jarring. No shame in my game. <laughs> um, so by the time it ended, there were kind of a couple, a couple factors that were part of that decision. And one of them was that creatively, I think we had grown apart and wanted to make different types of music and couldn't figure out a way to to meet in the middle or to blend those two genres. Um, the second was that we felt like the scene had really changed. And when we started, we were getting flown to play frat parties and this, that, and the other. And by the time we ended, every fraternity had a kid who DJed oh. or had like a friend who DJed. Right. And that's, um, I guess, technology changes. Right. It, it was yeah. almost 
just like oversaturated. Yeah, honestly, it was it was also just a really practical thing, the timing, because it was the end of the year and we thought, well, you know, we had emails. We ended up turning away a couple of offers that came in after we decided to quit. But really, we were thinking, well, the end of the year, that'll make things simpler for taxes. If we don't, if we're not making money in a new year, we won't have to file, you know, it's yeah, like yeah. Yeah. really practical things like that. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense practically, but then emotionally, when you decide to say no to something, what, how does that feel emotionally to sort of shut something down like that? Um, it was the, f- the year after was really difficult, but f- I think for reasons other than just having ended this project, mm. that was part of it. As soon as we disbanded, I was diagnosed with mono. Oh, so actually, the timing seemed okay because I think getting through that kind of rigorous touring schedule yeah. um, would have been really challenging with mono because that makes you extremely tired, mono, doesn't it? Yeah, it can manifest differently in different people. I think for me, it was more of a like consistent nausea for oh, wow. months. Um, but it, I definitely had. So after we ended, I did try to pursue a DJ career by myself mm. and realized pretty quickly that the that the shtick of there being two of us really uh, meant something to, to people. <laughs> oh, and I, yeah, I just, it like just wasn't working for me. So I kind of took a step back and thought, okay, rather than force this, I think I just need to like close the chapter and move on. Right. And I, after having lived this lifestyle, I was not ready to go sit at a desk. And so is that when you decided to move home? I, so I was in New York for that following year mm-hmm. dealing with mono. I was nannying, doing like freelance social media work, really whatever I could do. Yeah. So almost a year after we disbanded that I moved back home to Pennsylvania. Wow. And it was just, my, my mom had said to me, she'd come up to the city in, in March after I'd had a fainting episode and said, like, what are you still doing here? Your life is so hard. You're sick. You know, you're working two jobs. It's like, this is the hardest place to be. And I just couldn't picture my life anywhere else. Wow. So it had never occurred to me to leave um, until a couple months later. And I, I just, all of a sudden, literally within two weeks, I decided I was going to leave and I was gone. Well, once you got home, you know, back in your childhood bedroom, like, when did you pick up a pencil again and start drawing? Almost immediately. Okay. Yeah. I, th- I think also relieving that financial pressure of living in New York really allowed me to sit down with myself and say, okay, I'm going to set out with intention on a path. What, what am I good at? What do I like to do? Um, what feels right? What, what is not going to eat away at me every single day if I'm doing it? And I just kept coming back to art. Going home, was there a, a moment that you had to face your past and the your attack? Not directly, I would say. Mm. I'd been, uh, so during the time when I was in New York, I would go home occasionally, not often, but for Christmas or Easter or something. Um, and coming home was always challenging because I would, I could see where it happened from my front door. So for when it happened for the following year that I was still living in Pennsylvania as a senior in high school, I had to see the scene every single day. Um, and all I wanted to do was get the hell out. Mm. So I didn't come home often when I was in New York because I was like, I'm finally free. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I can't think of a specific moment or like reckoning that I had to have with with the assault when I had moved home. Um, I think mentally, it, just so much time had passed. I was kind of in a different place. And at mm-hmm. that time I had told my story. So I had already um, felt like I was starting to deal with it in a way that I had never when I was living at home before. When you share your story, is there power in that? And is that what inspired you to create MeWe? A lot, a lot of power. And that is the reason why I started this series. The, the biggest reason, there were a couple other things I think that influenced me. 
Um, but I told my sister, so after the assault happened, I was pretty vocal about it. I remember being on a local news station because my neighbor was a reporter. I remember standing up at a school assembly and talking about it. And I think most of that came from a place of wanting, wanting to make sure that people knew that this person was out there and that this can and does happen in a, you know, quote, safe suburban neighborhood where people think bad things don't happen. Mm -hmm. Um, it was my way of wanting to like warn people, um, and also try to show them the light. Cause I think a lot of them live under this or seem to be living under this illusion of, um, safety and security. And did that, I mean, the man was the man who who assaulted you? He was arrested. Was no, he? no, that that's a whole. I mean, I can tell that at the end. It's a crazy story. Um, I, so for the following months after my assault, detectives would come over with binders, and I would just sit there going through these binders um, of lineups trying to ID someone, and I never ID'd anyone um, because nobody. I just didn't feel as though any of those people I was seeing was the guy. I just felt like I would know when I saw him, and I didn't have that feeling about anyone I saw. So I never ID'd anyone, um, and. This, the, that saga kind of come came to a close last summer, actually. Oh, um, my God. <laughs> but all this while, right, this person was still out there. So I was vocal at the time, and then I think I um, just kind of closed it off in the back of my brain and moved to New York and didn't really talk about it. I might have told a few of my closest friends and maybe, like, someone I was dating because it felt relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then in 2016... I remember I was in the middle of Mono. I was nannying and the Kesha, I don't know if you remember this, but the Kesha Dr. Luke rape trial was happening. And I was so incensed by that. And it also felt so personal to me having been in music for so long. And I was seeing all that happening and seeing people I knew standing up in defense of Dr. Luke. And I I just like a switch flipped. I was like, I have to tell this story. Um, So I came home from nannying and it just like poured out of me. I published it on Medium and shared it to Facebook, and I was completely overwhelmed by the outpouring of support and people reaching out and saying, "We had, I had no idea. I'm so sorry this happened to you. Thank you so much for sharing your story." Um, and that moment for me was when I finally started to face what had happened and really realized the the power in storytelling and, and owning a narrative that felt so completely out of my control. Did that make you feel like you were taking? your power back or Mm -hmm. stepping back into your power from something that, you know, really does, you know, take your power away from Mm -hmm. you. Yeah, it it absolutely did. And so that's why why MeWe was so important? It is. So that project, when I moved home to Pennsylvania, I started working on a different series that was inspired by the refugee crisis. And the, the climate when I moved home was really interesting because it was September of 2016. And that was right as the election was in full swing. Mm-hmm. And where I'm from is the opposite of New York City. And it is ex- extremely conservative, extremely white, and it is Trump country. I, I wanted to do my part to try to humanize a crisis that had been just absolutely demonized um, yeah. on television. Because it, it was called Refuge, that mm-hmm. project that you did. Right. There is this idea people think I, f- I think people that people are like, oh, everyone wants to move to America and they don't realise that if we here in America were being bombed, 
we wouldn't want to leave but we would be forced to leave. And a lot of people who become refugees are not looking to get a free ride in a beautiful country. They're actually forced out of their homeland. They're forced out of the place where their soul feels, you know, their heart feels is their home and they're forced to go somewhere else that they don't necessarily want to and probably wouldn't have chosen to come to America or even in Australia as well. I know a lot of Australians are like, oh, everyone wants to come to Australia. And it's like, no, refugees are people who are displaced and forced out of their country. And it's a very different, we have this view of like, oh, these people are coming in and invading us. And it's not that at all. I mean, just the people I met through this project, um, a lot of the parents that I spoke to were had jobs at home, like doctors, lawyers, teachers, um, you know, working professionals. And they, they came to the States with a couple of kids and the jobs available to refugees in my hometown are limited. And I'd say that the majority of them end up working at the Purdue chicken factory. So I don't know whose choice that would be to go from being, you know, a doctor to on the line at the Purdue chicken factory. But that, that is the the few like the reality honestly for a lot of refugee families it's definitely not something I think you would do by choice uh, right exactly do you I mean did you living there at the time in 2016 were you not surprised when Donald Trump got elected no I, I wasn't you know, I wasn't yeah. surprised Lancaster City itself is um pretty liberal and they have it has a democratic mayor and the city resettles a lot of refugees I think mm-hmm. the the exact it's actually 20 times more refugees per capita than any other city in the United States, oh, which wow. is pretty stunning. But the yeah. county is very rural and conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's kind of this dichotomy within Lancaster itself. And the show was downtown. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. So I, I would assume that it, if it had been kind of out, out in the Goonies, uh, yeah. <laughs> it would have been a tougher sell. <laughs> Why is no one coming? Oh, that's amazing. So from the success of that, did that inspired you? And then also with everything that you'd been through personally, that it, that inspired you for this latest series? So after that finished, I moved out to LA and was kind of in this in-between, okay, what what series do I want to do now? And I, I had never thought about this until recently, but I think I like to work on art the way um, a musician would work on an album and that I like to create a body of work that means something and that tells a story. Oh, like each picture is a song within right. the album. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when I was in kind of this in-between phase, I I felt like the inspiration for my next series would would just happen. And like if I sat there trying to force it, it wouldn't be um, authentic. And that is kind of what happened. I mean, it was the moment of like Harvey Weinstein and this national reckoning and the Me Too movement. And I was thinking... I have been, I have lived this. Um, how can I use my bad experience to make good? How did you find the people that you have drawn? So two of them I knew in real life and the other seven I found on Facebook oh, through wow. a women's job board. And I posted pretty much a casting call just saying that I was an artist and I wanted to do this series. If anyone has um, been through something and, and would be willing to share their story with me, but also potentially the world, um, you know, leave your email. And I just started reaching out to people who responded and I sent them my own story first mm-hmm. to, to make, try and make them comfortable and let them know that I'm an ally and I've been through it. Um, and then in return, I asked for a selfie, which would be my reference photo and a summary of their story, which they could like expand on and edit later down the line. But I just wanted to get a sense of, um, 
the experience they'd had while I was looking and drawing their picture. I mean, you're a survivor, but was there anything that surprised you? That I mean, did you go into it sort of going, okay, I know what these people have gone through? And was there anything where you were like, whoa, okay, I didn't expect to get this from that? Oh, I I knew when I <laughs> when I asked them to send me their stories that it was going to be hard for me to read. Yeah. And honestly, asking for and reading other people's stories is in some way a part of my own healing process, yeah. I think. Well, um, it was it was really tough and the stories run the gamut. So there's something that I felt like I could relate to in every woman's experience. Everything from, I think we can all imagine what, what that spectrum of sexual assault looks like. And there, there are stories that touch on pretty much every, every point on that line. Wow. And also some of the women had never told their stories before. So I felt really like honored to be the person that they confided in and trusted to share their story. You went through what you went through and then reading all these stories, does it now give you a perspective on what you might say to another survivor who perhaps hasn't told their story yet or is at some phase of their healing process? Is there something that you feel you could share now that would help people with their healing process? Yeah, I mean, I think for, for everyone it's different and I understand that not everyone is comfortable or feels safe sharing their story. I think for a lot of women it truly is a safety thing. Like they, they knew their assaulter and they fear retribution. Um, I think that keeps a lot of people quiet. Um, but if I could give advice, I would, I would encourage people who feel safe to share their story. I think there's so much healing and power in that. And when you say share, you mean just tell someone that you tell can someone. Trust. Yeah, it doesn't have to be super public. You don't have to, you know, scream and shout it from the rooftop. Yeah. You don't have to turn it into an art series. And <laughs> but yeah, um, but sharing it in, in whatever way feels good to you. If it's like writing a poem that lives on your phone and nobody ever sees it, mm. um, I think just just getting it out. Is there a hurdle? Like, is there a point where you just want to shut off and you just want to numb it and forget about it and not? give it any life do you think as, a, as someone who you know as a someone who I guess is maybe still in the victim state you know and still hurting as a victim do you think there is that kind of like locking it in to think that that's going to protect you yeah I, d- I do I think that's probably what I felt until 2016 mm. um I just didn't really understand how it how it had any like relevance in my life yeah um and honestly it wasn't until like I, I didn't feel that I confronted it until I was forced to. Right. And that was when, that was in 2016 where right. you felt you needed to stand up and. Right. And then speak out. And that was the mm-hmm. first step. And then I felt like I had to confront um, kind of the psychological fallout when I was in a relationship that that really forced me to look in the mirror. Oh yeah. So I think it, that timeline is different for everyone, but I think at some point inevitably there will be an event or a series of events um, that force you to like look inward. Yeah, right. And you don't have to rush it and you don't mm-hmm. have to worry. It'll come when you mm-hmm. trust that you come when you're ready. And the other thing that I remember right after it happened is that my parents wanted me to see a therapist because that that is like by the book, you know, the thing mm-hmm. that you should do when you've been through trauma is talk it out. And I remember going to someone for one session and just really not wanting to be there, not wanting to talk about it. And I didn't see a therapist for many, many years after that. And that's the other thing is that um, therapy is so important, but I think you really have to want it for yourself. Yeah. Other people can tell you it's the thing you should do, but if you don't want to be there, I, I don't think there's really much to be 
gained from it. I I mean, you just have to come to a place on your own where you're ready and you Mm -hmm. want it. So it was after 2016. So then what did, what did happen to your attacker in the end? Oh, this is a crazy story. Um, last summer, I'll just start like at the beginning in the most chronological sensical way I can think. Last summer, I woke up in the middle of one night in June with a stomach ache, which is not super uncommon for me, um, but I did what I should have done and picked up my phone and stared at the blue light at three in the morning. And the first thing I saw when I turned my phone on was a post on Facebook from my first grade teacher. And we had become Facebook friends because I had run into her at the DMV in my hometown. Yeah. (laughs) So I saw her post this thing that said, oh, thank goodness there's finally justice for the family of this woman. Her name is Christy Marak. And, um, you know, her, the, the man who did this to her has been caught. And so the backstory there is that in 1992, there was a, a teacher at my future elementary school. I started there in 1994. So this is before, I mean, I was only three when this happened. And there was a, a teacher there who was violently raped and murdered. And my principal had been the one to find her body because he went to her apartment when she didn't show up for work one that morning. In the days before cell phones and emails, you drive to someone's home. And knock on the door. Right. And the door was open and there she was. So um, my future first grade teacher ended up being hired to replace her. Um, And that that event turned into one of the biggest, most long-running cold cases in my hometown. They couldn't find this guy. They had plenty of DNA, but there was no match in the system. So this case went unsolved for 25 years. So when I woke up that morning in the middle of the night and I was reading this post, it was because her, her murderer had finally been caught after all of these years. Wow. And I had yeah. heard about just living in Lancaster, you, you hear about this case and they had, her family had put up billboards over the years to try and like breathe life into it. Um, so I'm reading the article and it's, it's this guy who is a local celebrity where I'm from. He was a DJ, weirdly enough. Oh. Yeah. And everyone in my town, you know, within a certain age bracket had been in a room with him. He DJed proms, he DJed elementary school events, weddings, clubs, like everything. Yeah. Um, and I just couldn't believe it was this guy who had actually DJed my, my best friend's wedding. Oh my God. Um, and I had like stood in front of the booth and, you know, done like the electric slide or whatever. And so I was like just processing that. I ended up falling back to sleep and waking up a couple hours later and thinking about it, and I thought, hmm, I should put the picture, this guy's mugshot um, from you know yesterday or whatever at age 49 next to the composite of my, my attacker. I'm just curious. And there was definitely a similarity, but there was also a big age gap because it's like 2006 to th- 2018. Yeah. Um, so I thought, well, he's been a public figure for so long. Let me go on his MySpace which was still up at that time because it was the day after his arrest and they hadn't like scrubbed his name off the internet. Right, yeah. So I went to his MySpace and looked back to 2006, um, the year of my assault, and found a picture of him and then side-by-sided it with my composite from that year. And I I mean, I was stunned by the similarities. Um, And there was no DNA evidence in my case, so there was no like hard evidence. Um, But to me, it's strange that there was a similarity, a strong similarity in the way they looked. Yeah. Um, and from a psychological point of view, someone who would approach two girls, I was with a friend when it happened to me. So someone who would had the audacity to, to approach two women is probably someone who's done something like this before. Yeah. Um, 
are, you know, has a pattern of this kind of behavior. And knows his strength. Mm -hmm. And And then, um, so I was thinking to myself, what's the statute of limitations? Like, do I stand any chance in trying to reopen my case? And the statute in Pennsylvania is 12 years. And at this point, it had been 11 years and nine months. So I had three months left of my statute as this news is breaking. And I like the first thing I did the next morning was call my detective who's still in my phone from 2006. And he was still working? in She, she, yeah, she's still in the police force. She's been promoted. She's a lieutenant now, but she's still in the police force. Um, And I asked if we could reopen my case and they, you know, I kind of ran it up the line and I ended up calling the DA's office as well. Um, And I was not the only person calling in after this person was arrested. I think they were probably flooded. Wow. Um, and they they weren't able to, you know, file any charges because, again, that we're missing that DNA evidence. Yeah. Um, but, but I have my suspicions and so did the DA. Oh, my gosh. And then, I mean, I guess if he's been he, – he was arrested for murder. Right. He so took he's... a plea deal, so he, he will serve life in prison uh-huh. instead of the death penalty. Wow. Um, which is still legal in Pennsylvania. But, um, yeah, he's, he's gone for good. Wow. And then as yeah. that as that happened last summer, I was in the middle of this series. Oh so my if gosh. you know if we're gonna talk about circumstance and signs or whatever, I'd say they they're all there. I do think that there really is universal justice where okay, he didn't there wasn't anything that you could do to get him to go to jail for what he did to you, but he is in jail now mm-hmm. for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. So does that give you some kind of closure? It does give me some kind of closure. I, I think what I to ultimately have closure would be a confession. Right. Um, which I don't think I'll ever get. I did write him a letter. Yeah. Um, and I sent it to to the DA's office who said they would pass it along. And obviously I, you know, that was a year ago and I didn't expect to hear back and I haven't heard back. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I think for my own sanity, I just have to accept it as yeah. closure and, and move on. Um, it's a pretty stunning story. God, I mean, so it's so good that he's gone and locked up it's actually horrific to think that he went for that long right 1992 to 2018 how did they catch him in the end so it was through um a dna service called parabon labs and parabon was in the news last year because they're responsible for tracking down the golden state killer right so they basically are an intermediary between um sites like 23andme and um ancestry.com and police databases so if police have an unidentified DNA sample, they will give it to Parabon and Parabon will cross-reference all of the DNA in those 23andMe databases. And they'll either, I mean, they could get a direct match, but more likely they'll get a relative. So they'll find a, a sam- two samples that share 20% of their DNA or something, in which case they know it's like an aunt or a cousin or something. So that's what happened with the Golden State Killer and that's also what happened with this guy they found a relative of his in one of these databases and they built out a family tree. And I guess just through um, physical traits and like the age and the, the geographical location, they were able to narrow it down to him. So they needed to run his DNA against this mystery sample that it had been sitting in the police office for so long. So the police followed him to a gig at an elementary school which is horrifying. Yeah. Um, and he threw out a piece of gum in a water bottle, I think, which they took and ran it, and then they had a match. Oh, my gosh. What made them run his DNA again? There was a woman, um, I think she's in L.A., who had read about this case or seen it somewhere. It had really, I think, unsettled her, mm. and she 
I think helped kind of get the wheels, put the wheels in motion for, for Parabon to start working with the Lancaster police force or something. Gee, that's so awesome, isn't it? That is an amazing story. (laughs) Oh, see, science, you you go, you do bad things, you're going to get caught. I love that so much. Gosh, I like a bit of justice. (laughs) (laughs) So how many of the people in MeWe had, do you feel got this kind of closure with their attackers? Mm, Not many. Right. No, definitely not. If I remember correctly, a lot of the stories end with, you know, I, I pursued justice, I took him to court, and he was acquitted. They It, it became a he, he said, she said situation, um, in which case, you know, disproportionately the, the man wins. And um, I think in other cases, it was just kind of like, uh, it was a less violent offense. So it... Like somebody was, um, I think in one instance she was groped at a club, in which case it's almost impossible, I think, to, to, to have justice. That person is, you're in a dark room and they've kind of like escaped into the night. Yeah, um, right. So, yeah, not not often. And there's so many, what what is it, levels, you know, like when you say someone get gro- gets groped in a club. And I think it's so important for women or men, like anyone who is in a position of being a victim and being, you know, attacked on any level. I think it's important for people to realise that it isn't, it is okay for it to be not okay. Mm -hmm. And I've been in, um, I was in a relationship, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't sexual assault, I've been in domestic violence and I didn't do anything about it because I would think, oh, well, it's my fault or I did. But I think that there is that parallel with anyone who is in any form of sort of victim situation, whether you're being bullied by a boss who is abusing you and not paying you enough, you know, whether you're being sexually abused, you know, like whether it's uh, – there is this point where I think you it is okay to have a voice and I do – think back and I wish that there are so many times I wish I called the police and I wish I realized that I had that power to say stop you can't do this to me I think you you had asked me earlier if there was um like a piece of advice or something I would encourage women to do uh, something else would be to advocate for yourself and that's something that we learned when we were DJing just in negotiating mm-hmm. money um and demanding that we be treated a certain way just standing up for yourself yeah. And and the other thing, um, to speak more specifically to what you were just saying, is that sexual violence and domestic abuse happen together. Yeah. Many times. Yeah. Um, there, yeah. there, you know, I think there's this misconception that if you're in a relationship with someone, they can't assault you, mm. that there's no need for consent. And that is false. Yeah, it is that. It becomes this like, oh, but we're married. Area. So, you know. Yeah. 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 Yeah, where do you, where do you draw the line? And I suppose that's the thing. Is for me a big realization for me was that there that it doesn't matter where you draw the line. You draw the line where you want to draw the line. Mm-hmm. And if you don't want, you know, it's even for me. I've recently gone through a phase where I won't. I get a bit uncomfortable with people hugging me if I haven't given. And I was always like, oh yeah, you can hug me, you can hug me. But if, for me, it was a big part of my that was my line, and getting comfortable with going. I'm sorry that you're uncomfortable. It's not personal. You don't know my story. Mm-hmm. I just don't mm-hmm. want to be. I don't want to be hugged. I'm don't not a hugger. It. Yeah, I'm not a hugger. And now, <laughs> and that means it's such a big thing to me now. I think for me, I didn't have very good boundaries, and no wonder because I was in the situation that I was in. But I never understood when someone would say, "I'm not a hugger," 
And then now I'm like, yeah, because that's their line in the sand and the line, the line that you have where you think that's not okay, it is okay for that to be your line, mm-hmm. you know, and it's yours and it's yours only and no one can judge you on it. So, yeah, I think that is quite a powerful thing. So it is in- – wow, that's interesting. I didn't think there would be so many pa- – there would be actually a parallel. <laughs> I thought it was a very different thing. Just blew my Talk mind. Therapy. <laughs> therapy session for Mel. Thanks, Claire. <laughs> I'm not licensed. <laughs> yeah, none of us are licensed, all right? Don't, don't – yeah. but that is – hopefully this is a good start for anyone who's listening who is like, far out, yeah, actually, you know what? These are my – these are my boundaries. Also – um, something that I, that I want to say that has that I've been so moved by is are, are people who reach out to me privately, um, whether it's through Facebook message or Instagram DM or email, and confide in me their own stories or, or say that you know thank you for what you're doing. You've given me you've inspired me to start drawing to to tackle um, anxiety or to deal with um, the fallout from you know this event in my past. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So I, I get those messages from time to time and they're really, really incredible. That's amazing. And that's an example of someone wanting to tell their story, but maybe not in a really public way, but, yeah. but entrusting it um, to someone who is uh, who has chosen to tell it publicly. Yeah. They know that you will understand what they've been through at some level. And then I guess there is that distance. If you're not family or friends, mm-hmm. they can sort of safely tell right, you. Right. Exactly. Okay. So may we... It is on, so it's on at Tom's Shoes, but it's just limited. And Tom's Shoes on Abbott Kinney in Venice, which mm-hmm. is 1344 Abbott Kinney Boulevard in Venice. So June 6th to June 9th, you can see some of the, like, some the, of the stippling portraits. And they'll also be accompanied by stories, like written stories, which the women have written and I have not edited. I've just formatted. And actually three of the women um, spoke their stories. So if you scan a QR code you can hear them speak, Oh wow. um, which is really, really powerful. Really powerful, actually. Mm-hmm. If you can't get to the exhibit at Tom's Shoes in Venice, you can actually follow Claire online at clairesalvo.com. So you can go there and is, will the art be up there eventually? I'm, I'm working on getting it up. Okay, so that'll be awesome. So clairesalvo.com. And then also we can follow you easily on Instagram at clairesalvo. And it's Claire with an I, C-L-A-I-R-E. All the optional letters, C-L-A-I-R-E. Woohoo! And then salvo is S-A-L-V-O. That's right. You can follow us on Instagram, Beautiful Hollywood, at Beautiful Hollywood. And if you are lost, you can just go to beautifulhollywood.com and I'll have all the links to everything and you can track down Claire that way. If, unless you go to her directly, clairesalvo.com. I'm Melanie Camp. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, if you're a victim or a survivor, you are not alone. You're really not alone. And the National Sexual Assault Hotline is operated by RAIN. They're available 24 hours a day. You can call them anytime. 1-800-656-4673 is the number. That's 1-800-656-HOPE. That's the National Sexual Assault Hotline. So you can always talk to somebody anywhere in the world. Rain is amazing. And I also want to say that um, Tom's on my behalf is making a very generous donation to Rain. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. That's awesome. Oh, that's so good. Cool. So you can also go buy some Tom's shoes and spread the love there because actually they do. You can with Tom's. I love the fact that they do all that kind of stuff and you can actually decide where your shoes Mm -hmm. are going to benefit. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. I'm going to go buy myself a new pair of Tom's (laughs) and I'm going to select that they put that money to rain. I'm so happy. Claire, thank you so, so much. What an amazing story. Thank you. I'm so excited to see all your future projects and also your latest one, Me We. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Thank you. Beautiful. Beautiful Hollywood. Beautiful.